All right. Now I will pray and we will get going. God, I am um, so thankful for this community of, of believers here. God, I pray that, that everyone would feel what I feel. A sense of togetherness, a sense of we're on this journey together. A sense of that we as individuals can make a difference, but as we come together, our footprint gets bigger. So God, I pray that you would continue to, to build unity here. To, to draw us together with, with one heart and one mind because we have one spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. And God, I pray that as we grow together, you would continue to reveal the gifts and the callings in people's lives because no, there's, there's no one here that's too young and there's no one here that's too old to be used for the glory of the kingdom. So God, I just pray that that your spirit continues to do the work only it could do. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, just because I can, I'm going to take off my shoes. Oh, that's nice. Now we are truly oasis. I used to preach in... A t-shirt, shorts, and barefoot when we were a Sunday night service. But I've matured, as you can see. The button down going on here, huh? 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 All right, let's get into this. Church number four, Thyatira. Jesus is writing to seven churches, seven letters in the book of Revelation. And we've been kind of looking at them to see what it means for us. What is God trying to teach the church, the community as a whole, on how to follow him and how to live for the kingdom. In church number four, Thyatira, what's interesting about this church, well, there's a few things that are interesting, uh, at least for me anyway, because I'm kind of a geek that way, but I don't know if you'll find it interesting. But it really doesn't matter because I have the microphone and you don't. So we're going to get into this anyway. So uh, what's interesting is this is the longest letter written to the churches, and it's to a church in the most insignificant of all the cities. Now, we don't know a lot about Thyatira as a city or as its culture. But what we do know, I'm going to share with you. I know you don't have to thank me now. So this city is considered a sentinel city. Now what that means is it's set up in a very strategic location to be kind of a, a barrier for an invading army. Not that it would, um, not that it would do battle for some other city, but it would just be this like, Stumbling block as the army's coming in. And in this case, that place is the, the capital city of Pergamum. And so Thyatira is that place where if they're going to be, if Pergamum's going to be at attacked as a capital city, this, this city is just going to slow them down a little bit. And so on more than a few occasions, it's been destroyed. We also know that Thyatira was not a place of any real religious significance. It did have a few temples uh, to Artemis and to Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. It was not a center for Caesar worship, though Caesar worship took place there. But as we looked at Pergamum and the other places, it wasn't this huge um, center for it. The church, this Christian church, wasn't in any real danger of persecution. 
They weren't in any real danger of being threatened or suffocated by all these pagan cults. They weren't in danger of, of being betrayed to Rome for not worshiping Caesar. And so there's this, there's this little thing going on here. They, they, they really aren't in that much trouble. What we also know about Thyatira is it was kind of a, a trade hub. And a lot of goods and services passed through this little city, this little sentinel city. It was especially noted for its uh, trade in wool and cloth, and especially purple. In fact, as we read in Acts 16, there was a woman by the name of Lydia who was from this city, Thyatira, and she dealt with purple cloth or purple wool. And that idea that that, that one little... Um, bit of information about purple is very significant because it was very expensive. The dye was very ex- expensive. Either it came from some root of a, a plant, which I don't know the name of, or it came from the small gland of a shellfish. Shellfish. Yeah, I said that right. Good. I was practicing that all week. And so it was very expensive. And in fact, Lydia would have been considered a merchant princess. She was a very successful businesswoman, and she was very wealthy. Her business, her product, was one of the most expensive products in all the ancient world. Also in Thyatira, we know that there were a large number of trade guilds there. Now, a trade guild, no merchant or craftsman could do business or be in a trade unless they were a member of their guilds. I guess it would maybe, in in today's age, it would be like a union. But refusal to join your guild meant that your business was probably going to fail. And it also meant that if you were a craftsman, you probably weren't going to find work because you were not a member of whatever guild that you were supposed to be a part of. And so the guilds include like shoemakers, metal workers, and especially in Thyatira, bronze workers, uh, makers of dyed cloth, tanners, potters, bakers, carpenters, all of these guilds. And so physically and socially, these, these groups, these trade guilds were at the center of civic life for people in Thyatira. And it would probably cause problems for the Christians. Because every guild had its patron God. And every time that these guilds would gather, they would have their meeting, but there would also be a time of worship, and there would be a time of sacrifice to these gods. And during these meetings, as we looked at last week, the morals of the ancient world were very, very loose. And these meetings would would, would slowly slide into drunkenness, and other acts of immorality. And so the Christian had to make a decision. The Christian had to say, okay, do I become successful in business? Do I become successful in my trade? Or do I follow Jesus Christ? See, whenever whenever the world puts demands on the follower of Christ, whenever some organization puts demands on a follower of Jesus Christ, we are, we are faced with, with a real dilemma. We're faced with a question. 
Do we, do we give in to this or do we stand firm in our faith? And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know what? I don't go to happy hour with the office. No, this, this is not that. This is about losing your house, not having a job, being poor, being destitute. They had a decision to make. The church in Thyatira, uh, they, they had a very interesting tension going on because they weren't being persecuted. They weren't being suffocated by, by pagan cults. Uh, there was no threat of death because of they, they weren't worshiping Caesar. In fact, there was nothing from the outside pressing against them. The tension in this church actually came from within the church. And it was being threatened by one of the most serious and dangerous of all possible doctrines and all practices. It was the doctrine compromise. And so Jesus will write a letter to this church. And it just so happens that I have that letter on the screen. It's a little small, but there's a lot of writing, so I'll read it for you. I'm good that way. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. They will rule them with an iron scepter and I will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give them the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the letter that Jesus would write to Thyatira. Now we have to kind of break this down a little bit. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the only place in the book of Revelations where the, the term son of God is used. And, and what, it's, what Jesus is referring to is probably the worship of Apollo. Apollo was the son of Zeus, and Zeus was considered in that mythological time as the God of gods. And what Jesus wants this church to understand that he is the true son of the true God. And he wants the church to get a hold of that idea, to take notice, to understand who is divine and who has the majesty of divinity. And then it says his eyes, I'm sorry, um, yeah, his eyes and his feet are like polished bronze, imagery that's taken right out of Daniel chapter 10. But not just for the sake of nice writing. This idea of his eyes are like fire reveals the truth that Jesus Jesus sees everything. Jesus 
understands everything. And because of that, Jesus can judge everything. And he wants to make sure this church understands that very profound yet simple characteristic of who he is. There is nothing that can be hidden from Christ. Not a thought, not a feeling, not a word, not a mumbling, not an action, nothing. In fact, Jesus knows more about you than you actually know about yourself. And he wants us to understand that his eyes see into our hearts, see into our minds, know the very depths of our soul. And then it says, his feet are like burnished or polished bronze. Uh, bronze craftsmen in Thyatira, this bronze guild, what trade guild, was, uh, it, was, it was a predominant one in the city. Because the skilled craftsmen were very skilled in what they would do. And they would make things for the wealthy. And they would make things for the wealthy in, in their homes. And they would also make religious idols that would, could be used in other temples. And so this was a predominant skill and craft. And bronze was considered a, a, a precious metal. See, the things of this world that we think are important, they are not so important for Jesus. In fact, Jesus will take this precious metal and he will use it to walk on. And so Jesus here is, is asserting his authority, the son of God, the one who sees all, and the one who doesn't look at worldly wealth to mean anything. And after he kind of shares this with the church, he's going to give this church kudos, man. He is going to congratulate them on a job well done. I mean, when I read this text, this is a healthy church. Look at what it says. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Jesus knows how they're loving each other, and he knows about their faith. I would look at this one line and go, they're, they're getting it done. You see, if we have, if we as a church have the love of God in our hearts, then there should be a consequence of that love. There should be a way that we are living our life that reflects that love. It should affect the way we live. It should affect our actions. It should affect our thought process. And the consequence of loving God is loving people. And the consequence of loving people, the manifestation of that is service. It's actually doing something for others, making a difference in people's lives. Paul would, Paul would say it this way in Romans. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think you are superior. 
This is what love looks like in the day to day. We can go to Corinthians 13 and see all the characteristics of it. But this is kind of what it, what it looks like to live the love of God. In this church in Thyatira, they're, they're doing it. Jesus says, you, you guys are loving people this way. It's your love and, and, and your service. You're putting these two together. You're actually living this idea that love is the verb. And then they'll talk about their faith. You see, if we claim to have faith in God, if we claim to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, if we, have, if we say that, that Jesus is the one that, that has created everything, and Jesus holds everything together, if we've put our faith in his revealed goodness and even his concealed goodness, then our lives should be lived in a very specific way. Our lives should be lived in such a way that reflects that truth. And so when things get hard, and guess what? They will. Perseverance in faith says, I am not going to give up on God. I, in my disappointment, in my frustration, in my aggravation, in my anger, I am not going to give up on following Jesus. That's persevering in faith. In Ephesians, it says that because of Christ, we can come to God in all freedom, which means wherever you are, hurt, angry, or joyful, You are free to approach God because of Jesus Christ. And you can approach him in confidence, it says. This is about faith and about persevering through the difficult things in our life. Because life is hard sometimes. And this church, this church is doing it. Loving people. They're loving God. They're serving people. Their, their actions are, are motivated by love. And they're persevering through the hard things. They're not giving up. It wasn't easy to be a Christian back then, even in Thyatira. Jesus is recognizing this church for who they are. I see your deeds, your love, your faith, and your service and your perseverance. And you know, you know what's even better? I can't go back, but it's, I could go back. Actually, I have the clicker. Watch this. Oh, there it is. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. This church is growing in their love for each other. This church is growing in their serving each other. They are growing in their faith and their perseverance for God. They've started out here and they are moving forward and growing as a church. I mean, how many Bible studies have you been to where you start out with 25 people and by the end there's four of you? This church is growing in the things that God has called them to do. I would say this is a very healthy church. 
But we know that we know that Jesus has some things against them. And he's going to tell them those things that he has against them. But I wonder if you've recognized a pattern up to this point in the four letters that we've read and the way Jesus, Jesus speaks to these churches. There's actually, I don't think it's a formula, but it's definitely a pattern. He begins by telling them who he is. So he's speaking from this place of authority, and it's an authority that they recognize. And then he tells them the good that they're doing. I see this, I see this good in you. I see that you're doing well here. I know that you're, 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 you're succeeding over here. But I do have some things against you, some, some places where you're missing. And he's going to tell them that too. But first he begins with the good. And I believe that we as individuals and as a church need to get a hold of that idea. That we practice the model that Jesus has for us in our homes, our families, at our jobs, in our community. Because here's a very simple truth. Criticism, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's criticizing this church for the way that they are failing. But criticism always needs to encourage, and it's never to discourage. Criticism is not about getting your dig in to make somebody feel bad. It's always about building someone up. When we have the reason to confront, when we have the reason to criticize, and I know that we don't like that word criticism, criticize. It has, in our culture, it has a very negative connotation to it because it always seems to hurt people when we criticize. But the reality of it is, the reality of it is, is that we will find ourselves having to do it. And if it's done in the spirit and the way that Jesus does it, those criticisms will be words of blessing and they will build up. We have to be very clear with the people that we come to that, that we are not coming to them to hurt them, but we're coming to them because we love them. We don't come to them with criticism because we think they're useless, but we see the potential in them, the unrealized potential, and it hurts us that they're not living up to it. And so we come to them out of a place of love. You see, the way Jesus does it, he starts off with the good, right? And when we start off praising someone in that context, man, it just, it just breaks down the walls that the idea of somebody coming to you and telling you that you're not doing something right builds up. I mean, we automatically get really, really defensive. Who are you to tell me that? You think you can do it better than me? Go ahead, go do it better than me. Stupid person telling me. And, and that's, but that's our attitude when we're criticized. But Jesus starts with, look at what you're doing. Look how good you're doing. But I got some things against you. And he does it out of a place of love. He does it out of a place he wants them to do well. We need to get to the heart of the matter here, or we should be getting to the heart of the matter here. Criticism, point blank, needs to build people up, period. And so that means that many times we all just need to shut our mouths. I don't know how nicer 
a way I can say it. Or maybe this way, only two words. Shut up. Because too often our criticism does not come from a place of love or grace. And, and it, it comes from this desire to put somebody in their place. To make sure that they know we are right and we can do it better than they can do it. Too often our criticism is meant to dig and to hurt. And that's not right. And as a church and as people, we have to stop it. This is not about making ourselves feel better. It's about speaking life into people's lives. Sometimes our words, man, they could just be downright mean. But after we say them, we laugh. (laughs) Didn't mean that. Mm. Toothpaste out of the tube. In 2003, when I was being considered for my first ministry position at the church I was at, uh, there was a lot of pushback um, about me being the pastor of student ministries. It seemed that I wasn't educated enough. Um, it seems that I didn't have any experience. There was something about a tattoo that I might have had at the time, which has been um, moved off with a, removed with a laser now. So, um, but but there was this there was this pushback from some people about me becoming the pastor of student ministries. In fact, during that whole time, the church was trying to restructure itself, and there was a lot of pushback about the whole restructuring. I remember there was was some people, especially one elder, who decided that we weren't all on the same page, and so we we had to stop all forward progression. And we had to have meetings. See, the Lord knows I'm getting a little hot under the collar here. He wants to cool me down. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so anyway, so we had to have these meetings. And these meetings, I'm going to call them the fine-tooth comb meetings because every single detail had to be scrutinized. And we had to put sticks in the ground, not literally, but okay, we've decided on toilet paper, Cottonelle, not Charmin. That's a stick in the ground, and we're not moving. We're not changing that. And that sounds funny, but that's how just yeah, they were. And so I was at one of these meetings, and the pastors are there, and the elders are there, and the church board is there, and the ministry leaders are there, and there's ministry people there. We're having one of these meetings, and the, the position of the pastor of student ministries comes up, which means that, that my, uh, my candidacy for it or whatever came up, and there was a lot of talk about it, and this, this one elder in particular really didn't think that I was the right person for the job, and I remember sitting in this big group of people, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Dennis, I love you, but we can find somebody for a lot less money that's way more qualified than you. Just so you know, I did not feel the love in that statement. But here's my point in saying that. And you know what? Let me tell you this about that. Those words hung with me for years. For years. Until I could come to a place of understanding that that was a dig from the devil himself. And that even Satan can use a Christian against a Christian with their words. Now the Lord has shown me that by his grace, I've been called to do what I do. Not by anybody or anything other than that. But here's the truth. And more often than not, we don't like to admit it. But we all make those digs 
we all speak to people with the intent of breaking them down and hurting them or not thinking about what we're saying. And we discourage instead of encouraging. All too often, the condition of our hearts is dark and it's ugly. And when we open our mouths, the darkness and the ugliness just spills out. And I've got this to say about that. We have to stop. We have to stop. And, you know, there, there's even something worse. Maybe it's not worse, but it's, a, it's a, at least as bad or just as bad. We like to criticize, and, and I'm using myself here as an example because I did a lot of self-examination before I brought this to you. But we, we like to criticize behind people's backs so they don't know. And then we say, well, we need to have this discussion because I need to pray for them. And I need to know how to pray. And so tell me all of the things that they're not doing right. And what I found when I have found myself doing those things, if I'm really honest about it, it's because I'm a coward and I won't go to the person in love and have the conversation with them. And I got this to say about that. Gossip has to stop in the church. The scriptures tell us it's like a a choice morsel that goes down into our innermost beings. You know, it's just like something you like to chew on. It tastes really good, but it's from the very pit of hell and it causes nothing but hurt. Our words, our words need to bless people. Our words need to build people up. Husbands, when was the last time you spoke blessing into your wife's life? And not with, hey, dinner was great tonight, honey. No, no, no. I mean blessing. I bet if you think about it, you don't know how to bless. Wives, don't sit there with a smirk on your face. When was the last time you spoke blessing into your husband's life? And not good job on the lawn, but real blessing. And you know, you finally got that done is not blessing, okay? (laughs) Parents, do you speak blessing into your children's lives? Just with your words. Do we do it to our friends, the people we work with, other people in our family? Have you ever just blessed a perfect stranger? Because you felt the tugging of the Lord on someone, in your heart, just to speak something encouraging to someone. We are always way too quick to criticize and just awfully slow to bless people. Why is that? You know, we have an we have an epidemic in this country, in this culture, and it's called poor self-esteem. And I wonder if the root cause of that epidemic is because we do not speak blessing and encouragement into people's lives. And yes, sometimes you are going to have to confront someone. Sometimes you are going to have to offer criticism. Sometimes you're going to have to rebuke someone. But it always has to come from a place of love and caring for them. Jesus rebukes these churches not to to dig at them, not to make them feel bad, because he wants them to live the best possible life they can live. 
He wants the best for them. And sometimes he has to get in there and he has to talk and speak some truth that's hard to hear. But he does it because he loves them. What's the best for them? He doesn't want them to survive in this life, but he wants them to thrive. And so for us, if you don't really love the person you are criticizing, if you in your heart don't want the very best for the person that you're speaking these difficult words to, if you don't want them to succeed and do well, here's my simple rule. Again, shut your mouth. Be quiet. Don't say anything. Because our words should bless even when they're difficult to hear and when they're difficult to speak. That's what Jesus is doing with these churches. Even when he has nothing good to say about the church, it's for their good. He wants the best for them. And he wants to build them up. If you're sitting here and you are thinking, man, I wish he was here to hear this. Or she really needs to hear this. You have missed the entire point. You haven't even walked out the door yet. This is not about them. It's about us, you, me. This is the message to the church. And I know there's a lot more in the text about Jesus confronting the church. And it talks about immorality, sexual immorality. It talks about idolatry and adultery in the context of pretty much cheating on God. And it names this Jezebel woman. And some scholars say that the Jezebel that Jesus is talking about is Lydia herself. Because she went back to Thyatira. She's a very successful businesswoman. Very wealthy. And she was introducing compromise into the church. Hey, listen, if we're going to be successful, then we've got to do these things. We have to be a member of the trade guild. And yeah, we got to go and we got to party with the pagans for a while. But it's okay. Jesus will understand. And Jesus, no, 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 no. Compromise is not ever an option in our faith journey. And Jesus is coming against that. And it's, it's a pretty harsh. He's like, you know what? She's done. I gave her a chance. Mm-mm. She's going to get sick. I'm going to afflict her. Whatever that means. When Jesus says he's going to afflict you, it's probably not a good thing. Just saying. But I don't believe the Lord has that for us this morning. Because we've spent a few weeks talking about our own immorality and our own hypocrisy. And even we can call it our own compromise in our life. And last week we, we took this time to repent of those things. And I hope that you took that seriously. And maybe, maybe you didn't even, you didn't do something here, but when you left and during the week, God moved in your spirit and he, and he revealed things to you and you repented of it. I believe the message that the Lord has for us this morning is this idea of speaking blessing into people's lives. Know that when Jesus comes to these churches and he says, look, it's the good that you are doing. But you know, I've got, got something, something to tell you. You still need work. There's some serious things that are, that are out of rhythm for you. He is doing it from a place of loving them. Not to hurt them, make them feel bad, 
not to get his divine dig, not so they should hang their head in shame, but so they can experience the grace of God and look up and repent and have the best possible life that they could live. This is the purpose of these letters. Jesus does it because he loves the people and he loves the church and he wants the kingdom of God to move forward through his people. So he blesses. Even when the words are hard to hear, even when they're words of rebuke and criticism, because Jesus loves and he blesses. And so it should be with us. No matter what you speak, whether it be to congratulate or whether it be to criticize, your words should always, always, always. Did you hear that word always? It's not sometime, most of the time. And I know this is a high bar that we set, but if we don't strive for the height of the bar, we are going to fall miserably below it. Our words should always pour life, blessing, people's lives. I'll leave you with this verse from Ephesians. Do not let un- any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Be, be a blessing. Let your words flow from a place of love. Caring. And if they don't, shut up. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you love us so much that you're willing to rebuke and confront those things in our lives. But God, we are too quick to criticize and not quick enough to bless God. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would change that in each one of us, that you would break our hearts and see that how much we are loved. And from that place of recognizing how much you love us, that that would pour from us in our actions and in our words. Lord, I I ask you to forgive us where we've fallen short. And we accept your grace in those areas. But Lord, we will not let grace be an excuse. We will let grace spur us on to good works that you have called us to, that you predestined us to. And that every part of our being would remember that we are here to breathe life into this world and to shine light So strengthen us for that, God. Strengthen us for that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Have a great rest of your holiday. And I will see you next week.